The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, we've been in this series on the Apostles' Creed, really trying to dissect, dissect all of it by line, line by line, seeking to understand the core doctrines of our Christian faith. And as a graphic on the screen, that, yeah, that one, and on the back of your bulletins indicate, the series is called Everyone a Theologian. That's what we've been going through. We're on the second to last week. We'll be closing it up, closing it out next week. When you hear the word theologian, you might, you might picture the likes of C.S. Lewis or B.B. Warfield, J.C. Ryle, or R.C. Sproul, to name a few. Um, but the goal of theology isn't so that future generations would remember us by our initials. Um, the goal of theology is to know God and that our knowing God would lead to worship, that it would lead to doxology, that all theology must lead to worship. And so all of our pursuit of knowing and understanding who God is and what he has done must point us to the beauty and the glory of God as a response of worship. Um, So our series through the Apostles' Creed has been a way to navigate through some of the core truths of our faith, faith and to express that in line with what the scriptures teach us. And so we're not preaching out of the Apostles' Creed as we've been trying to emphasize. We're we're preaching out of the word. And the Apostles' Creed is a tool, a guide for us to navigate these truths. So first, let's turn to our text for this morning. Um, Just some context. As you're turning there, um, it's Luke chapter 7, verse 41 through 50. That's Luke chapter 7, verse 41 through 50. And just some helpful context as we're turning there is that Jesus has been invited over to this Pharisee named Simon's home for a meal. And during this meal, which is probably more of a public meal where people are spectating and listening to what Jesus has to say, a woman of the city comes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears, with her hair, and some ointment, it's described. Knowing that the woman was a sinner, likely a prostitute by the way that she's described, Simon the Pharisee criticizes Jesus for not recognizing her as a sinner, to which Jesus gives his response in our text today. And so this is Luke chapter 7, verse 41 through 50. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So we're talking about forgiveness of sins. It's a pretty significant Christian doctrine, I would say. As we're nearing the end of the series, the next line in the creed says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. 
This is something we all believe, I hope, as Christians. More often than not, if you ask someone, if you ask a Christian, what is Christianity all about? Or if you ask anybody in general, what is Christianity all about? And you'll probably get a response with something to do with Jesus dying on the cross on behalf of our sins so that we could be forgiven. Sadly, more often than not, that's where it ends. That's about as deep as it gets when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins. We don't stop to reflect on what forgiveness entails or how it even works. It becomes something that we take for granted and simultaneously becomes an idol in our pursuit of God. Yes, you heard that right. Forgiveness can become an idol in our pursuit of God. Forgiveness is often misunderstood And our text today reveals to us some of the postures of our hearts that often cause us to misunderstand forgiveness and faith and the nature of it. Oftentimes we tend to see forgiveness as sort of a commodity and a confusing one at that. Sometimes it's given, sometimes it's received, sometimes it can be earned, and sometimes it can't. Sometimes all it takes to gain forgiveness is just by saying sorry and other times, it's not, mo- not enough to just say sorry. It has to be more than that. You have to mean it. Sometimes it's hardest to give it to the people closest to us. And it's really hard to ask for it from people because it makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel ashamed for doing something wrong in the first place. After all, we don't want to do anything with guilt or shame. That's bad. We live in a day and age where Shame and guilt have no place in society. Shame is, what, what, what is defined by our society is that shame is not being able to be true to yourself and who you are, to express yourself. So shame has no place in that. The banishment of shame has fueled Planet Fitness and their motto of judgment-free zone. No grunting, no dropping weights. Can't judge one another. And we don't want to have to apologize for being who we are. So the world tells you, don't apologize. Don't just be yourself. And while some of the results of this aversion to shame has produced positive outcomes, such as anti-bullying campaigns and positive self-esteem, these are good things to an extent. It's also left people with a true disdain for anything that makes anyone feel bad in any sort of way. I mean, after all, we don't really care about forgiveness. Picture the movie Gladiator, one of my favorite films. The whole story is driven by how the main protagonist, Maximus, he wants to go home. That starts out, he, it starts, the movie starts out with a battle scene, and he just wants to go home. And when, when his wife and child are brutally murdered, home for him becomes death, a figure of expression for death. And from that point on, he has nothing else to lose, so he gives it all. And he does all that he can to exact his vengeance and justice so that he can be with his home, his wife and child, in death. But imagine if the movie all of a sudden just ended with, you know what, I'm just going to forgive them. I'm just going to forgive that. The fact that they brutally murdered my wife and child, I'm going to forgive them. I mean, the movie wouldn't be two and a half hours. The movie would be over in 15 minutes. There would be no movie. There would be no intrigue, no drama, no thrill of exacting his vengeance, getting justice, the classic moment when he twists his arms and takes his own, own knife to take out his, his anger, his, 
his wrath. Closure to his pain. Or picture the Avengers. An entire premise is built on these superheroes who are out to protect the galaxy. I mean, there's over 20 movies to build up this whole universe of these superheroes who are avenging the loss of everything that we faced on Earth and there's just people disappearing and whatnot. Imagine if they said, you know what? We forgive you for wiping out all these people. I mean, there would be no plot line. We love the thrill of vengeance and the idea of getting justice in that way. Another thing the world might say about forgiveness that we might say about forgiveness is forgive but never forget. As in, yes, let go of those angry and upset emotions that you hold against someone. Don't hold those grudges. That's unhealthy for your mental well-being. But don't forget how they've wronged you. Hold on to that. Because psychology, popular psychology tells us it's not always healthy to forgive someone right away. Or even at all, you deny yourself the right and opportunity to be upset and feel hurt and sad. So we hold on to the ways that we've been wrong and hurt so that we cannot go through that again. Right there at the forefront of our memory bank is this experience that causes us pain. And so that in the future, we won't let it affect us emotionally so that it won't shame us. What all that leaves me with is that we're at best ambiguous about forgiveness. We're not sure what it exactly is. We're not completely sure that it's good all the time. We're not even sure that it's all bad. But we know that we don't like feeling guilty. We don't like feeling shameful. And we know that we'd rather see narratives of vengeance rather than forgiveness. So when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, it's worthwhile to consider as Christians, what are we confessing? What are we saying? What is the nature of forgiveness? Our view and understanding of forgiveness have been tainted and twisted, and I hope that our text will shed some light on that. Indeed, Scripture gives plenty of insight on this matter, and we see a peculiar example in our text today in Luke 7. But first, to borrow from J.C. Ryle about forgiveness, he states that our forgiveness in God is great and broad, forgiveness. It's full and complete forgiveness. It's free and unconditional forgiveness. It's offered, it's willing, it's tried forgiveness, it's present forgiveness and everlasting forgiveness. Now this is, this is coming from a lengthy, lengthy sermon that he goes into to talk about forgiveness of God. But in the same sermon, he goes on to say that the greatness of it, the greatness of God's forgiveness is far more than any report And so all that's to say that our study in this passage of Luke is not meant to be exhaustive or comprehensive. It's not meant to be for our church to all of a sudden fully grasp what forgiveness is. But I do hope that it is a powerful launch pad for us to understand the depths of God's grace. So in our text, we see Jesus interacting with mainly two figures, Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman of the city who's not named And through this exchange, we see how Jesus explains the nature of forgiveness to them and for us today as well. And the main thing is that, the main thing that we want to take away from the text is this, that the very nature of our forgiveness and faith depend entirely 
on Christ. The very nature of forgiveness and faith depend entirely on Jesus Christ. You're at church. I know you're sitting between a CVS and a Domino's, but we are at church. And that's an obvious truth, and you're Christians. So the fact of the matter is, we, but, oh, but the fact of the matter is, we often look to measure our forgiveness, whether from God or from others, by our actions, by our ability to make up for the wrong that we have done, and our sense of emotional depth with feelings of grief or sorrow, with how we feel sincere about truly apologizing. And what this means is that the forgiveness that has been purchased for God's people, the forgiveness that we're trying to understand, is infinitely greater than any of our own emotion, thought, or feeling. And so that brings us to the first point that will help us to understand how our forgiveness depends entirely on Christ, is that the largest debt is our own. The largest debt is our own. This is one story Jesus uses that probably speaks to all of us at a, at a certain level, at a deep level, between student loans, car payments, credit cards, mortgages. I mean, if there's one thing that we as Americans fully, fully understand it, at a 20 trillion deep level, it's debt. And if you have the means to make steady payments on your debt, then it probably affords certain luxuries like having a house, a car, or any number of things. But if you struggle to make those ends meet, that debt can really bring you down. And I'm sure we understand that to varying degrees. I mean, I've certainly felt the pressures of that myself in the past. And Jesus talks about these two debtors, these two people who owe different amounts of money, but they both could not pay. One who owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And put that into perspective, 50 denarii is about two months of salary. And in comparison, 500 denarii is about 20 months of salary, so times 10. Equated to the current wages today, that's a large, large, large sum of money. And it seems at face value that Jesus is saying, the one with the larger debt has been forgiven most. And that's confusing for us because when you start to assign value to things. We tend to relate those values and compare to one another. I mean, 500 greater than 50, this is obvious. So we say this is more or less because of the value that's placed on it. It's especially confusing because Jesus asks Simon to make that comparison himself. He asks in verse 42, which of them will love him more? And we find the rare moment where the Pharisee gets it right for once and he responds and says, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt, which Jesus agrees with. And this reveals a truth about the nature of God's forgiveness, that the more you are forgiven, the more that we are forgiven, the more you will love and appreciate and respond to that forgiveness. That is a truth. Even though it's confusing for us, even though it seems like we're placing a value on the amount of forgiveness that we're receiving, the more you're forgiven, you will love, appreciate, and respond to that forgiveness. But another truth to go along with that is that the scenario that Jesus shares is not a story comparing the two debtors. The point of Jesus' story is not to compare the guy that owes 50 versus 500 and to say one's better 
or worse. It's a story that tells us that there are two debtors and one moneylender. And though it tells us that one's only owed two months and one's only owed 20 months wages, what it says is that they both could not pay their debts. The guy who couldn't pay his two months worth of debt wasn't, was just in much trouble as the guy who couldn't pay the 20 months salary. They both could not pay, and yet the money lender cancels their debts. And do you see what's going on here? Jesus is speaking directly, directly to Simon's blindness of his own sins. As Pharisees throughout the gospel seem to do, a few verses back in we, what we didn't read in verse 39, Simon says to himself, if only Jesus knew what sort of woman was touching him right now, talking to him, interacting with him, this sinner, this wretched person, this supposed Jesus who's supposed to be a prophet, he has no idea what's going on. But ironically enough, it's only Jesus who truly knows and sees this woman and her own recognition of her sins, her embrace of her guilt and shame, recognizing her depravity, that she would go to such lengths to wash a man's feet with her very own tears, with her hair. She seems to understand that she has sinned and that she falls short of God's glory. And Jesus here is telling us that wages of all sin, any amount of sin, is death. Forget the 50 or the 500 denarii. Your proper due wages is death to sin. I remember receiving my first paycheck as a 16-year-old high school kid working at some after-school child care program, uh, working at an elementary school. And I remember being introduced to the likes of FICA and federal and state income tax as a 16-year-old kid. I mean... I counted all those hours and I said, oh, well, that should add up to about a sweet $500 and change. Um, but to be left with a paycheck of $300, rather, um, I felt shortchanged. I thought that was my due wages that I was supposed to receive. I mean, talk about shortchanged for real, is that the wages of our sinful living is not taxation. It's death. It's ultimately death. And evidently, Simon did not understand the gravity of his own sins or even acknowledge the existence of his own sins. This woman goes to extreme lengths, on the other hand, to show her realization of her sinfulness. And so this is what we must come to realize first when we're trying to understand forgiveness that just as the woman in this story recognizes the gap between her and her, her sinfulness and God and his holiness, we must recognize our own sinfulness before God. Our sins, it's not relative to one another. Yes, we are a community. Yes, we are one body as a church, as God's people. Yes, we're to hold each other accountable as brothers and sisters in Christ to people's sinful actions and call them out and correct them, rebuke them. But first and foremost, our sin is before God and our sin isn't measured by the degree of the offense, but by the fact that it is an offense directly to God himself. As R.C. Sproul would call it, this is cosmic treason. 
our sin is measured only against God's holiness. So when we see these two debtors in this story of Jesus, we're not meant to see that one owes more or less than the other. What we are meant to see is that there are two debtors who are equally unable to pay their debts. And before their ever gracious and merciful lender, who equally and fully cancels the debt of both. R.C. Sproul also says this about sin. Because we live in the midst of sinful people, where the standards of human behavior are set by the patterns of the culture and the world around us, we're not moved by the seriousness of our own transgressions. It's not until we understand who God is that we gain any real perspective and understanding of the seriousness of our sin. Now, looking to the text, we don't know that the woman fully knew or understood who Jesus is. But what she clearly seems to understand is the seriousness or the weight and gravity of what she has done, her sins before God. Jesus points to her loving and humble actions of washing his feet, applying ointment. I mean, ointment was supposed to be the expensive thing. Oil is abundantly accessible and everywhere, whereas ointment was this expensive perfume. And so this, this ointment that Simon did not offer, and he judges her. Jesus judges the woman by her current actions of humility and challenges Simon by asking him in verse 44, do you see this woman? Do you see what she's doing? Because Simon, you did not show the same kind of love or hospitality or humility. And so Jesus says, he who is forgiven little loves little. It's far from a comparison. Jesus is trying to portray a reality, a reality that though the sins of Simon and the sins of this woman are probably different and probably varies in quantity and the degree of offense, that they are both, in fact, sinners who are unable to properly receive their wages of death and survive. It's a true reality for us today as well, that though we have all varying sins in our lives, we're not meant to compare ourselves and our shortcomings to to one another, but rather we measure it against God and His holiness. We compare it to God and we recognize the gap that exists between us and Him and to respond accordingly to that. Do you do this? Do you look to others to justify your sin? Do you picture your spouse or your children? We talk about pride or being too stubborn. Do you picture your boss or coworker or employee that just annoys you because they're unbelievably incompetent? What do you, what do you picture? And yet we often fail to measure our own shortcomings to God's perfect, perfect righteousness and holiness. <coughs> Jesus is meaning to help us to recognize the reality that we live in, that we have all sinned before God, that none are righteous, not even one, that all of our realities are that the largest debt owed is our, owed by ourselves. 
forgiveness understood in this light leads us to love. It leads us to faith in Him. You see, as we say each week here at Holy Cross, it's God who initiates with us. It's more than a catchphrase. It's God who reveals His goodness. It's God who reveals His holiness that repels all sin and causes us sinners to be confronted with our sinful hearts. But the gospel story is not about us. It's not about forgiveness even. The gospel is not good news just about forgiveness. The primary good news of the gospel is the story of a good, holy, perfect God reconciling his rebellious people to himself. You see, the relationship that is fixed is not about us receiving forgiveness. It's about us being restored to God and with God. God and his creation reconciled. That is the good news. Not simply that we've been forgiven, as we often mistake it to be, but that our forgiveness allows us to approach God. Forgiveness, then, is not an end in itself. Forgiveness is the means by which we experience God's good and perfect gift to us, his grace and mercy, to the end of being restored in relationship with God once again. So forgiveness is certainly more than saying sorry. Forgiveness is to taste both simultaneously the seriousness of sin and the unconditional love of God in a simultaneous and miraculous way that leads us back into relationship with him. Which brings us to my second point, the sole object of our affections and faith is Christ alone. So with the proper view of our sins in mind, that the largest debt owed is ours. With that in mind, hear this passage again, starting in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. While Simon was preoccupied with passing judgment on this woman as a sinner, condemning her to be less than him, Jesus points out that this woman has done everything that she could to bring honor to Christ in that moment and to show him the hospitality that was probably actually expected of Simon that he lacked. She washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. She greets him by a kiss, by kissing his feet. And while Simon didn't anoint Jesus with oil, which I said was cheap and plentiful, she anoints Jesus' feet with ointment, which is expensive and fragrant. And while she was not the host, she takes the posture of a host, welcoming Jesus into the home with a posture of utmost humility. I mean, these are not very hygienic practices from a practical standpoint. But what it does is it shows us that she was willing to devote everything that was in her power to serving and loving Jesus. Jesus' response 
to her actions affirm that she has done this with sincerity, with a genuine heart of love. And he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. This isn't to say that she has earned this forgiveness. But by the love that she showed, Jesus is pointing to her loving, affectionate actions as a confirmation of the forgiveness that she's experienced. Notice that Jesus isn't simply dismissing the, the numerous sins of this woman. He makes it a point to note that her sins are many. But more importantly, much more importantly, much more powerful is the fact that she is still indeed forgiven through all that. And as one that has been forgiven, her actions are an appropriate response, the one of faith and love. Her actions are rather upsetting for this Pharisee, as you'll see, because on one hand, this, this Simon, he's the host. Jesus is reclining at his table in his home. And so it's expected that a proper host show proper hospitality to his guests and treat him with honor and dignity. I mean, I'm, I'm currently experiencing this now firsthand, what it feels like to host as I'm, my fiance Ketty and I are trying to plan a wedding in Maryland. And we're expecting about three to 400 guests, um, maybe more, where about a third of the guests are Ketty and mine's, and the rest are people from my old church that our parents are friends with, and also my parents' coworkers and her parents' work, um, and all these other people that we have no idea who they are. And one of the things we're trying to do is, it's really difficult, but we're trying to get a somewhat accurate guest count, which is difficult when there's, there's just an inherent culture in my Korean culture of not RSVPing. Um, <laughs> you might think that's rude and inconsiderate, but it's one of these quirks where the wedding is held at the church where it's filled with 1,500 Korean people and it's celebrated by the entire community regardless of invite. It goes in the church bulletin. Um, it's a whole thing. It's got its pros and cons for sure, but keeping track of our guest count has been impossible, if not challenging. What this woman is doing, just her actions, we kind of read it and see, oh, she's doing a virtuous thing. But what this woman is doing is not equivalent to only just not responding and just showing up. But it goes as far as to say in modern terms, she's calling our caterer and changing the food menu. She's calling different guests and creating her own guest list. She's arranging her own flower arrangements and taking the duties that is, that is supposed to fall on a host and taking it upon herself to show hospitality to Jesus in this way. She's going above and beyond to offend this Pharisee so that she could show her devotion and faith and love to Jesus. So understandably, this Pharisee is confused and upset. This is the length that she's going to show the depth of her forgiveness and faith and love. And her works point to a genuine love that's demonstrated and affirmed by Jesus. For she loved much, he says. She's forgiven much, and therefore, she's able to love much. Jesus sends her off by saying, your faith has saved you, affirming that her faith is present in her actions. We're not sure what to make of her and her circumstances because we're not really given a full backstory on who she is or 
what she has done to get to this point in her life. We're not sure what she knows or thinks of Jesus, but Jesus in his divine nature is able to see her faith through her works just as he, he also perceives Simon's judgment and doubt through Simon's own thoughts. And we're reminded from the epistle of James that tells us faith without works is dead. So we don't really know her story, but we do know that Jesus sees the evidence of her faith and he affirms it. But the question still persists. How does she have faith? Where does it come from? We're talking about faith and forgiveness and how it's intricately tied together. And so that brings us to the final point is that we receive faith and love from God. Theologian John Calvin says this about faith. Faith rests upon the knowledge of Christ and Christ cannot be known apart from the sanctification of his spirit. I'll read that one more time. Faith rests upon the knowledge of Christ and Christ cannot be known apart from the sanctification of his spirit. What this means is that we, in our standing as the largest debtors, as utterly depraved sinners, cannot know the goodness of God, the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, without the sanctifying, purifying work of the Holy Spirit. Faith does not suddenly emerge in, in, in a way when we respond to God. Rather, faith is given to us by, by God, by the work of His Spirit. God initiates with us because he alone is absolutely sovereign and he alone is in control. God initiates with us in creation. God initiates with us by his revelation. And God initiates with us by his forgiveness and grace. When Jesus turns to the woman in our story and he says, your sins are forgiven. It leaves the rest of the people at the table with utter confusion. Who is this guy who even forgives sins? Just picture the table. I mean, along with Simon, these are probably Pharisees or guests with acquaintance to Simon, understanding parts of the law as the Pharisees should. And they understand, they have this understanding within the law that only God is able to forgive. So this question that they're asking each other is not born out of curiosity and a desire to genuinely know who this man is. No, they're re reacting with just, they're appalled that this Jesus, this man is claiming to forgive any sin at all. They're shocked. But take a step back and observe the scene of our text again. Jesus is sitting there having dinner with Simon and his posse. This woman is an uninvited guest, a, spe a spectator at best. And yet it's her that has caught the attention of Jesus. It's her sins and her love and her being forgiven and her being saved that has captured Jesus' attention. Not any, of, any one of those people that are dining with Jesus. You see, there is a distinction of those that don't know Jesus, but are putting on the appearance of knowing him 
hosting him, having dinner with him. I mean, they're, they're having a jolly old time with him. And this woman who doesn't loudly claim to know Jesus, she knows him in the most intimate way as a savior, as, as a part of this redemptive and restorative relationship. Her faith, her forgiveness, her salvation, all of it, it is a miracle. Perhaps not in the typical way that we understand miracles to be, but to see a wicked sinner be led to such a posture of love and faith before the Lord is to see the greatest miracle of the Christian life. The faithless having faith, the lost becoming found, the hopeless filled with hope, the restless filled with rest, the ruined becoming saved, and the sinner being made holy, the dead becoming alive. That is faith that saves us, faith that's not known or understood by our own will, but only by God's grace. Christ that saves us by grace through faith, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This understanding of faith is worded beautifully, I think, by the theologian B.B. Warfield. And he says, It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but it's Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. And we note that this woman's mission from start to finish, is Jesus and Jesus alone. To know him, to shower him with love and hospitality. And indeed, that's our only hope and goal as people that are called to a church, a body that have experienced God's forgiveness. That as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we claim to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's from him that our faith and love are from. And the goal of the Christian is not to receive forgiveness so that we can get into heaven and live eternally. Those are all great blessings. But the goal of the Christian is to know Jesus Christ and to dwell with him. So in closing, we have to recognize that there are certain truths about what we talked about in the beginning of how the world at large views forgiveness. Guilt and shame are inevitably part of it. We don't like it, but, and we don't, experience understand, we don't experience forgiveness without understanding that guilt and shame. The woman lived a life of shame, and yet in the end, Jesus sends her off in peace, resting in the same hope that is given to you, that is given to us through our forgiveness. The world tells us we shouldn't be ashamed about, ashamed about anything. We should feel free to be yourself. But I tell you that there is an infinitely better way because Jesus doesn't tell us to stop feeling ashamed. He doesn't say to pick yourself up just by yourself. Jesus tells us that there is a proper place for shame and guilt and these feelings of sorrow and grief that as we feel sorry and sad for ourselves, he invites us into a relationship with him. And in this relationship with him, guilt and shame have their proper place, and that place is at the cross. 
Isaiah 53 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He carries our guilt, our shame, our sorrows. And he carries it to the cross, to his death. That all those things are put to death with him. And the wrath of God is perfectly and completely satisfied. The judge does not pardon the thief simply because he's sorry. But the punishment of the offense is satisfied by Jesus Christ and the judge wipes clean our records because Christ's righteousness has been made our own. And this judgment also has its proper place. Judgment takes its place at the seat, at the mercy seat of God where our Lord Jesus Christ in his triumphant return will take his place and rule for eternity. We're told that there was no more tears, no more mourning, no more grief or sorrow or sin or death or sickness, illness, brokenness, no more strife or hostility, no more injustice that leads us to cry out, how long, O Lord? No more refugees or oppressed or victimized. There's only Jesus because he alone rules with perfect justice. That's hope for us. And if you don't know Jesus in this way, I hope to leave you with that, that he has never turned away a broken and contrite heart. Recognizing our guilt and shame doesn't mean that we have to sit in that, that we have to sink into it. But rather, it means that we're freed from it, that we're liberated from sin and death. So turn to Jesus today. He alone offers forgiveness that's once and for all. He offers life that is eternal. And he alone is able to do this. He alone is able to forgive by his grace. As for us, the church, our goal as Christians, our aim in life is not absolution from guilt and shame and judgment. Our goal is to confess to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified It's to recognize that we ourselves each hold the largest debt. But as we look for a way out of this debt, Jesus freely offers that way out for us by way of knowing him and setting all of our affections and faith, which he gives to us freely, upon him. And so church, rest in him today and go in peace just as Jesus sends this sinful woman. Let's pray together.